0: Let's go to God's Word this morning. I'll go back to the book of Matthew chapter 5 this morning uh, We're about halfway through this in Matthew chapter 5 in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where Jesus uh, tells us about the Beatitudes Uh, Again, each of these Beatitudes begins with the word blessed and we said that word blessed means an inward Satisfaction is an inward sufficiency that does not depend on our outward circumstances Uh, and so It it, it can be defined as joy. It can be defined as happiness to an extent. But each of these characteristics, each of these beatitudes is a a characteristic of someone who is a citizen of the kingdom of God. It's someone that's truly saved, okay? And so far we've looked at uh, a few of these, and we talked about in the first one where Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, uh, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And we said if you're poor in spirit, that means you realize that you are totally destitute, you are spiritually bankrupt, you are totally dependent upon Jesus Christ as the source of your salvation. Someone that is poor in spirit understands they can't do it, but Jesus Christ has paid it all for them, and it's all to him that we owe. And then he said the second thing is, Blessed are those who mourn, uh, for they shall be comforted. And we said that word mourn is not just talking about any kind of mourning. It's the type of mourning that you would experience at the at the graveside of a loved one and what we're to mourn over is sin okay we're to view sin in the same way that God views sin, okay? We should hate sin. We should mourn over our sin, not try, to, uh, not, not try to cover it up, but we should confess it, and we should forsake it. We should live a lifestyle of repentance. And then last week, we looked at the third one, which in Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And we said that meek means that you have power or strength under control in other words a meek person trusts god a meek person delights in god a meek person rolls their burdens upon the lord and a meek person quietly waits upon god in other words meek people realize that even though they got power to do some things they submit themselves to the lord and realize that god is in control and he's going to work everything out in their life for their good and for his glory. And that's what we said meek means. And so now we're going to move on to verse 6 here in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to see another beatitude that he says citizens of the kingdom they exhibit. He says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be in your translation maybe say "filled." i like the how the nasb puts it they shall be satisfied blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied and this morning i want to kind of Look at this verse more closely. And I think if you look at this verse and if you're going to outline this verse, there's, there's really three things that's going to stick out in this verse to me. First thing is, Jesus is going to talk about our ambition, okay, or our appetite. Then the second thing he's going to talk about is the aim of our ambition or our appetite. And then thirdly, he's going to give us an assurance in that if we would do what he tells us to do. So let's first and foremost, let's look at first and foremost our ambition. Jesus says here in verse 6, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Let's stop there for a second. Now from reading this verse in its context, we know that Jesus is not talking about our physical appetite. Jesus is using hunger and thirst here as a metaphor. Hunger and thirst are natural human desires. When someone doesn't eat or when someone doesn't drink, we know that that person is not well physically. And so when Jesus says the word hunger here, he is not talking about just a small hunger that probably most of us understand. This word hunger means it is a strong desire to attain a goal. It is to long for something which is necessary for sustenance of life. In other words, it's a deep hunger that he's talking about here. It would be the same type of hunger that we read about in 2 Kings chapter 6 when there was a famine in the land. The Bible says that people were selling donkey's heads, and dove's dung to eat. And I doubt any of us this week ate donkey's head, okay? We haven't gotten there yet, okay? But this is the kind of hunger that Jesus is talking about when he says, blessed are they who hunger. He's talking about, and you know how kids are, and and my wife says how I am, how we can be finicky eaters, right? Right? You'll say, I'm hungry, and they'll say, well, get something out of the cabinet, and you go and you look at it, and you're like, I don't want that. If that's your attitude at that time, you're not really hungry. See, when you are hungry, you don't care what it is, as long as it ain't poisonous. You're going to eat it, because that is your desire. You are hungry. And it's the same thing when he talks about thirst there. When he mentions thirst there, it is an intense thirst, someone who is dehydrated and in need of water. Now, when I was growing up, and I'm still like this today, I never wanted to drink after anybody. I just didn't. I thought it was gross. But when I started playing football, and we went out in that August heat, and we would practice for a couple hours, and the coach would blow the whistle and say, "Water break. And all us players, red, yellow, black, and white, we'd just be all just digging our hands in that ice, and just, we didn't care. You understand that? All you wanted was a sip of cool water on your tongue. Why? Because you were thirsty. You didn't have time to be choosy in that situation. You just said, whatever it is, I'm going to drink it. And so when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, he's talking about an intense desire, an intense hunger. And you got to realize this, we are not only physical beings, we are also spiritual beings. Every one of us in here this morning, we are created in the image of God. And since we are all born into sin, when you're born, there is a lacking completeness in our life. We all have a void that needs to be filled. Matter of fact, St. Augustine would call it a God-shaped vacuum. And I don't understand, there's not really a God-shaped vacuum in our lives, literally, I believe he hit on something he said that every single one of us has a God-shaped vacuum or God-shaped void that we try to fill And we try to fill that void with all sorts of things as a matter of fact If you remember you older folks and this is this will be better for the early service, but in the late 60s there was a rock group that came out with a song that would eventually become one of the what was called one of the greatest rock songs of all time, and that song was this, I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction. And it captured the feeling of people during that time, and I believe it also captures, the feeling of our world today because it seems like people just simply can't find anything to satisfy them. See, Solomon was an example of this. Solomon writes the book of Ecclesiastes toward the end of his life and as he's looking back on his life, he recounts all the things he tried to fill that God-shaped void, that God-shaped vacuum in his life. As a matter of fact, in Ecclesiastes 1.17, he writes that he tried to find satisfaction in wisdom. He says, I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, but I realized that this also is striving or chasing after the wind. Have you ever just simply tried to go out and catch the wind? Of course you haven't. Because you would realize how futile it would be to try to catch the wind. You can't catch the wind. And Solomon said, listen, I set my heart to say I'm going to become as wise as I possibly can. But guess what? In all his wisdom, he grew emptier And emptier and emptier. Then he tried to find it in worldly pleasure. Ecclesiastes 2 and 1, he said, I said to myself, come, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. But I found that this too was meaningless. Do you realize that when you go, and, and some of you people are your beach people. And you love to go to the beach. But there comes a day down at the beach and you're like, I'm fed up with this. I'm tired of the sand. I'm tired of the, hunt, the the sun. I'm tired of it. I want to go home. When you go to the mountains, you may say, oh, I love looking at those beautiful mountains up there in Pigeon Forge. But after about day two, when it takes you an hour to go six miles you say, you know what, I'm tired of this. You cannot find satisfaction ultimately in pleasure. You can't. It may appease you for a little bit, but it will never fill that God-shaped vacuum in your heart. Then he says, This, I tried to find it in work. So he goes from pleasure to work. He says in verse four and five of chapter two, He says, I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. And I planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. And so he said, I can't find it in pleasure, I can't find it in wisdom. He said, I will try to find it in my work. And you know what? Work won't satisfy you. It will not satisfy you. Then he said, and we I'm not going to read this from Ecclesiastes, but in 1 Kings 11 and 3, he tried to find it in women. So you had wealth, you had work, you had women. And listen, 1 Kings 11 and 3 says this about Solomon that he had 700 wives. I don't know if he ever, I don't even know if he was really wise. <laughs> he had 700 wives, princesses and 300 concubines. And guess what? 700 wives didn't satisfy him. You know, there's some people that say, well, if I could just get with the right person, I'd, be fi- I'd finally be satisfied. No, there is no man, no woman that will ever fill that God-shaped hole in your life. See, you don't marry somebody so they'll complete you. You're complete in Christ Jesus. And only in Christ Jesus. So you can change spouses week after week, but it will never completely satisfy your soul. Never will. And so he tries to find it in wealth. He tries to find it in work. He tries to find it in women. And again, as I said, he tried to find it in wealth. Look what he says in 1 Kings 10 and 14. He says, now the weight of gold which came into Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Now that is equivalent, listen to this, to $1.1 billion in a year. $1.1 billion in a year. And guess what? No matter what he tried, whether it was wisdom, whether it was women, whether it was pleasure, whether it was wealth, no matter what he tried, everything in his life that he thought was going to bring him satisfaction, it left him Empty. Everything that the world tells us, if we can just get this, we'll finally be satisfied. If we can just get that, we'll finally be fulfilled. Solomon, he tasted it all. He owned it all. He experienced it all. But when he looked back over his life, he said, you know what? All those things were meaningless. It was simply like chasing the wind. And I believe that's the reason why a lot of people are unsatisfied today is because they're trying to fill that void with the wrong things. So that's our, the ambition, hunger and thirst. What should be the aim of our ambition? Jesus says in verse 6 here again, going back to that, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness. So Jesus was telling his listeners that righteousness is like food and water. It's not a luxury, but it is a necessity in our life. And so if righteousness is to be the aim of our hunger, our desires, of our ambition, we need to properly define what righteousness really is. Because a layman's term of righteousness would be this. It would be simply in right standing with God. It is the condition of being in a right relationship with God. And so we can say that righteousness is being right with God and being right with yourself. Now, Righteousness involves two aspects in our lives. It involves the aspect of salvation. And it also involves the aspect of sanctification. What is Jesus talking about here? I believe he's talking about both here. Let's talk about salvation, first of all, as it relates to righteousness. How do we obtain a right standing with God? Let's first and foremost look at what will not get you in right standing with God. These things won't get you there. First and foremost... Religious works will not make you righteous. Titus 3 and 5 says this, that he saved us not on the basis of the deeds which we have done in righteousness. And so you can't do enough good things to get to heaven. You can't. Again, Isaiah says our righteous deeds are as filthy rags in God's sight. So religious works will not make you righteous. You would not be righteous in right standing with God by trying to keep the law. Paul was saying Galatians 3 and 11 that no one is justified, that means declared righteous, by, before God by keeping the law. You cannot keep the law. You've never been able to keep the law. You've never been able to. See, the law was not given so that you could Keep it perfectly because you can't do it. The law is what reveals who God is to us. But the law also is like a mirror. It shows us ourselves. It shows us who we really are. That's what the law does. The law also leads us to Christ because it realizes I can't do it. But thanks be to God there was one that did do it. How do we obtain righteousness in our salvation? In other words, a right standing with God in salvation. Well, let's look at Romans 3, 21 through 24. This is what Paul says here. He says, but now, apart from the law, in other words, this is not, this is apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested or made known, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now, verse 22, he says this, even the righteous of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. He says, "For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God." Now, listen. This is verse twenty four tells us, "Being justified." And what does justified means? It means being declared righteous. Being declared righteous is a gift by His grace. Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And so how are we made right with God? It's by faith. Romans 5 and 1, Apostle Paul says this. Therefore, having been justified, what does justified mean? It means declared righteous. We are declared righteous by faith, by trusting in Jesus Christ. That's how we are made righteous. See, peace with God means you are in a right standing with God because of Jesus Christ. And so we are saved by grace through faith. It is a gift of God, and that gift is this, that God looks upon us and declares us righteous. He declares us righteous. Why? It's based on what Jesus Christ has done. Jesus' record gets put on our record. It's a gift. It's a gift. It's not something you can earn. Salvation is a gift. Okay, understand that. Well, that is what I would call positional righteousness, But the second aspect of righteousness is what I would call practical righteousness, okay? So while the first aspect deals with our salvation, the second aspect deals with our sanctification, okay? Now listen, I'm not going to get into all the nuances of a positional aspect of sanctification and and progressive aspect of sanctification. I'm not going to get on that. I don't have time this morning. But I will say this, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we're declared righteous. That's positional. That's our position, okay? But there's a second aspect of that, and that is our practice, okay? In other words, you are righteous. Now live like it. When we went, when we went through the book of Corinthians a couple years ago, remember, you read the book of Corinthians. Man, that's a messed up, that was a messed up people. Messed up people. And when Paul writes to them, he starts in that very first chapter talking about their calling. He says, you are holy. You are saints by calling. And the reason why he tells them is he says, listen, this is who you are. Start living like it. I don't know if you remember this, but I told you guys, I said, listen, you guys, if you say you're a saint, now that may make a low, most of us uncomfortable, right? I don't want to be, I, I don't go around and introduce myself and say, hey, I'm Saint Rodney. But in God's sight, you are a saint by calling. Now, I'm going to say this, if you go around and introduce yourself as Saint Joe, That's true, but you better live like it. Right? And this is is Paul's whole premises. He wants people to know, many times when he writes his letter to these churches, he wants them to know, this is who you are, live like it. You're not down here, this is where God has placed you now, live like his child. And this is what I'm talking about on the practical aspect of righteousness. Because when we talk about sanctification, sanctification means sanctify means this, to set apart. It means to make holy. But it's also the process whereby I am conformed to the image of Christ. Now, our role in sanctification is both passive and active. Passively, we are to trust God to sanctify us. But actively, we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices and yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit. Actively, we are to choose to do what is right. You understand that? That's why Jesus will say this in Matthew 6 and 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Okay? We're to seek... His righteousness. Now that's not talking about our positional righteousness necessarily because we're declared righteous. But what he's talking about is you're to seek to do what pleases God. Paul would say in 1 Timothy 6 and 11, But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, gentleness. You are to pursue those things. Now let me give you a practical way to hunger and thirst after righteousness, okay? Let me give you a very practical way I believe we can find in 2 Timothy two twenty-two 22 and 22, okay? This is a very practical way to pursue righteousness, okay? Paul tells Timothy, now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. There's three things he tells us here. How do we pursue righteousness? First and foremost, he says there's some things you need to run from. There's some things you need to run from. He says flee from youthful us. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 6 18, flee fornication. In other words, you don't stay and fight it, he says you flee it. He would say in verse 14 of chapter 10 of 1st Corinthians, he said you should flee from idolatry. Do you realize your the human heart is an idol factory workshop. We love to have our idols. We love to make our idols. We make politicians our idols. We make a hobby our idol. We make a job our... In other words, listen, I know you don't have a a little Buddha statue in your yard. Hope you don't. But just because you don't have a statue that you go out and bow to, doesn't mean you have an idol. Anything that comes before God in your life is your idol, whether it's work, whether it's wealth, whether it's pleasure. If there's something that you place before God, that's your idol. And Paul, realizing that the human heart is desperately wicked, always trying to find things to chase after, says you better run from idolatry. 1 Timothy 6 and 11, Paul says this, but flee these things. Young man, what is the things he's talking about there? If you read the context, it's money, it's riches. Now, here's, my, here's the question I've got. I'm going to try to hurry up. I don't understand these Christians that are just out trying to get rich. Don't understand it. I don't understand those that say, well, I'm going to sow a seed of $1,000. So God will give me a $10,000. Do you realize that Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to go through that eye of the needle on that wall in Jerusalem? He said it's hard. He didn't say it's impossible. He said it's hard, though. So why would you pursue something that would make it harder on you to get? Now, listen, some people God blesses with riches and they can handle it. But most people can't handle it. And many people have plunged themselves into misery trying to get that Nigerian prince to send them millions of dollars on Facebook by giving them a few thousand dollars. Why? Because that is their aim. Their ambition is not God, it's money they don't want what God they don't want God they want the blessings instead of the blesser and so he says here, if you're going to pursue righteousness there's some things in your life you got to run from every single day of your life you're going to have to wake up and realize you better hit the ground running i'm not talking about physically because i don't like running you can tell by my weight but spiritually you're going to have to hit the ground running every single day because there's things in this world that are trying to pull you away from God that are trying to get you off track and let me tell you something it's much better most of the time to run than to stay and fight see solomon said in ecclesiastes 9:18 he said wisdom Is better than weapons of war. In other words, being wise about something is far greater than being strong or thinking you're strong about something. See, there's a reason why Joseph, when he went to Potiphar's wife's bedroom, and she came in there, and you can't tell me she wasn't a beautiful woman. You can't tell me that. She was probably very beautiful. But Joseph, in his wisdom, said, I can't stay around and try to fight this. He said, I got to get out of here. And in your life, if you're going to pursue righteousness, you got to realize, child of God, every day you got to get up running you got to get up running. Running away from some things. Because you're not as spiritual as you think you are. You're not as strong as you think you are. So every day of your life, you get up and you flee sinful things. You run from them. You don't stay around and placate it. You don't, stay around. you don't stay around and pet that lion because that lion may be tame for one moment. It's going to eventually turn on you. See, James has said like this in James 1, 14 and 15. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. Enticed. He says, so Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. That's how sin brings forth death is because it draws you away by your own weaknesses, by your own desires. Listen, if eating cauliflower was a sin, we could all be saints all the time. Brussels sprouts, that kind of stuff. It's not Brussels sprouts I got a problem with. It's the chocolate cake. You do too, right? It's the things that are appealing to the eyes. It's the things that are appealing to the senses. And that's what sin does. It appeals to our fleshly appetites. You realize your flesh is all dressed up with no place to go because it's gonna, it wants to have a good time because it's all it's got is right now. But it's your soul that'll pay the price. Flesh, it's gonna disintegrate. Soul is forever. So he said, There's some things you gotta run from. But then he says in verse 22, but there's not some things you gotta run from, he said, There's some things you gotta to run to, okay? Look what he says here. He says, And pursue, flee these things, then there, the second line there, and pursue faith, love, and peace. In other words, It's a present imperative tense. It means it's a command, not a suggestion. In other words, it's a continual action. It's a lifestyle. It's a habitual action. In other words, I am constantly to pursue these things. It's not a one-time thing. Just like when Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God, he's not talking about a one-time thing there. He's talking about it's a constant pursuit in your life. I am to constantly pursue God's kingdom and his righteousness. It means I'm to go after these things with all my effort, with all due diligence. So it's not just enough to run from something. We need to run towards something because if all you do is run from something, you'll wind up filling that void with something far worse what you left. Then he says this in that same verse. and you got to be car- you got to carefully watch this to, to catch this. He said, with those. So he says there's some things you've got to run from. There's some things you've got to run to. And then thirdly, you need to run with those who call on the Lord. I know that's, com- that's some kind of simple things, but it is the truth. Listen, you're not to fight this alone. You understand that? We are to run with those. We are to encourage one another while it's still called today. We're to exhort one another, help stimulate one another toward good works. If you run with the dogs, you're going to get fleas. I promise you that. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 and 33, Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good morals. It is impossible to associate regularly with wicked people without being contaminated by their ideas and by their habits. There's a reason why when God told his people, when they were going to the promised land, he said, listen, you're about to go into a land that's filled with people who do detestable things. Why did God give them the book of Leviticus when he said, you don't touch this, you don't associate with this? Because he knew there were traps and snares all around in that land. And he gave them that word for their protection. In the same way we don't want our kids to hang around certain people, God doesn't want his children To make a habit of hanging around. Now listen, I understand you can be a witness to those people. I'm just saying, what friendship does light have with darkness? If you're a child of God, how can you consistently hang around children of darkness? There should be nothing in common there for you to hang out with. You understand that? If you're really saved... You want to be with saved people. You want to be with people that's going to lift you up like iron sharpens iron. You want to be with those people, not with those who are going in a different direction. There's no fellowship, there's no, no commonality there. But what I'm saying is this you've got to run from some things, you've got to run to some things. And you need to run with those who are calling on the Lord in your life. So then finally he gives us the assurance here. And I'm going to try to hurry here. So we see the the ambition, hunger and thirst. We see the aim would be righteousness. it's, It's being in right standing with God as far as salvation goes. But also it's pursuing the things of God. Wanting to please the Father. Then the assurance is this, they shall be satisfied. They shall be satisfied. Let me finish that St. Augustine quote because he says it like this. He says, There is a God shaped vacuum in every man that only Christ can fill. That only Christ can fill. You can't fill it with money, you can't fill it with relationships, you can't fill it with pleasure. Only Jesus Christ can fill that hole. Psalms 34 and 10 says, The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Psalms 145 and 16 says, You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. John 6 and 35, Jesus said this, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will not thirst. Only Jesus can satisfy your soul. Satisfaction, come on. And I would say this, if you're here this morning and you can't find satisfaction, there's only one or two reasons. Either you've never met the Master, or if you have, you've gotten your eyes off Jesus. You've fallen for the lies of the world. See, this world will never truly satisfy you you were not created to be filled or be satisfied by the things of this world. Only Jesus Christ can bring you peace, joy, satisfaction, and fulfillment. And I'd say it again as we're standing. Matthew 5 and 6, Jesus says this, Happy, prosperous are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. That's the assurance. Jesus Christ satisfies our souls.